Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Refractory bipolar depression represents the most challenging condition to treat in bipolar disorder. Researchers indicated that suboptimal availability of circulating thyroid hormones may contribute to the high rate of treatment failures in bipolar disorder. Bauer and colleagues, therefore, performed a study to see whether doses of thyroid hormones might improve depression in bipolar disorder. A six-week, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial was conducted to test the efficacy of adjunctive treatment with supraphysiologic doses of levothyroxine in patients with bipolar depression. The study was sponsored by a grant from the Stanley Medical Research Institute. Patients receiving levothyroxine did numerically better than those treated with placebo. However, Due to a high placebo response rate, the study failed to detect a statistically significant difference between the two groups in depression score change. The change in women's depression scores was significantly greater than that in men. High levels of thyroid-stimulating hormone, indicating suboptimal levels of circulating thyroid hormones, predicted positive treatment outcome in women receiving levothyroxine. The authors conclude that adjunctive levothyroxine is a promising strategy to overcome treatment resistance in bipolar depression, especially in women. Bipolar depression is a difficult-to-treat condition. Success rates of antidepressants are extremely low, and patients require a lifetime need of prolonged and highly complex medication regimens. The disorder is so disabling that one-third of patients attempt suicide and one-fifth eventually die from suicide. Few options are available to treat suicidality in bipolar depression because the efficacy of common antidepressants against suicide has been questioned, and effective drugs such as lithium have a long latency of action. Previous studies have shown that the combination of one week of chronotherapeutic techniques with long-term lithium can prompt treatment response in more than one-half of patients affected by drug-resistant bipolar depression. In this article, the authors used this combination of repeated total sleep deprivation, morning light therapy, and lithium to treat 143 patients requiring hospitalization for a major depressive episode in the course of bipolar disorder. The study received partial funding from the European Union. The study authors obtained a 55% stable response rate, despite more than 80% of the patients being drug-resistant. They observed that response to treatment involved an immediate decrease in suicidal ideation, which dropped to a very low level after the first chronotherapeutic treatment and remained low thereafter. This immediate benefit extended to patients with a positive history of attempted suicide and to patients with current suicidal thinking or planning. 
Remarkably, final non-responders also achieved some benefit, with significantly decreased depression severity also including suicidality ratings. These rapid and powerful effects, the authors conclude, closely resemble those described in patients after taking ketamine, which mimics some of the actions of sleep deprivation on glutamatergic neurotransmission. Patients with late-life depression often report cognitive complaints, and evidence from a number of studies suggests that depression and cognitive impairment in later life may be linked by a number of neurobiological mechanisms. Despite mixed results from recent trials, SSRIs and SNRIs are typically used to treat patients with co-occurring depression and cognitive dysfunction. In this secondary analysis of data from the recent MTLD3 study, a group from the University of Pittsburgh examined the relationship between cognitive diagnosis and response to open-label antidepressant treatment. This study was supported by the National Institutes of Health, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Endowment in Geriatric Psychiatry, and the John A. Hartford Foundation. The authors found that participants with normal cognition, mild cognitive impairment, and dementia were similar in the time and intensity of treatment needed for response, which was defined as achieving a Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score of 10 or less for three consecutive weeks. Non-response to medication was correlated more with longer depression duration, a history of recurrent depression, and younger age rather than with cognitive diagnosis. One limitation of the study was the open-label nature of the protocol, which prevented researchers from knowing whether it was the medications that allowed these participants to respond or the supportive environment of the clinic and very close follow-up. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a common neurodevelopmental problem of childhood, often leads to the development of depression. ADHD in combination with depression leads to worse outcomes, and it is therefore important to prevent development of depression in children with ADHD. Using a large population cohort of adolescents with lifetime diagnostic data collected at a mean age of 19, a group from the Netherlands assessed depression in children with and without ADHD. They found that depression usually arises due to two other associated psychiatric conditions, anxiety and disruptive behavior disorders. Further, these disorders increase the risk of depression not only in ADHD, but also in sub-threshold ADHD. The researchers found that both boys and girls developed anxiety and disruptive behaviors, and that disruptive behaviors were more strongly associated with future depression. The authors advised clinicians to be alert to the possibility of future depression when children with ADHD develop anxiety or disruptive behavior problems. This research is part of the Tracking Adolescents' Individual Lives survey. This longitudinal study is actually part two of a study that was published in the March 2012 issue of the JCP. It uses a nationally representative sample to analyze patterns of PTSD from trauma at the hands of another. 
Many studies have reported higher rates of PTSD after potentially traumatic events of an interpersonal nature compared to non-interpersonal events. However, we don't know whether it is true for all forms of interpersonal trauma or its impact on PTSD symptom profile. This study examined three types of trauma most likely to give rise to each of the 17 symptoms of PTSD. The types are non-interpersonal trauma, interpersonal trauma such as physical assaults perpetrated by non-intimates, and intimate interpersonal trauma such as sexual assault or physical assaults perpetrated by partners or caregivers. The authors analyzed Australian National Survey data and found that participants who reported intimate interpersonal trauma were the worst affected, experiencing particularly severe intrusive memories and reminders of past trauma and suppression of emotional response. Those with non-intimate interpersonal traumas differed only on the symptoms of hypervigilance and exaggerated startle response from those reporting non-interpersonal traumas. The unique impact of interpersonal trauma, however, intimate or otherwise, compared with non-interpersonal trauma, is the experience of an environment as unsafe and unpredictable due to the potential of human threat. These findings have significant implications for the assessment of and interventions for survivors of interpersonal violence. This study was supported by an Australian National Health and Medical Research Council Program Grant and Career Development Award. It is well known that people with schizophrenia are vulnerable to physical illness. In this month's continuing medical education offering, a group of researchers compared the causes and rates of death over 10 years for people with and without schizophrenia in Manitoba, Canada. They found that the mortality rate for those with schizophrenia was twice that of the general population. When looking at all age groups, rates of death due to suicide, circulatory and respiratory illness injury and lung cancer were significantly higher for those with schizophrenia, while overall cancer deaths were similar. However, when they examined mortality by age, cancer death rates were significantly higher in people with schizophrenia aged 40 to 59 compared to those in the same age group without schizophrenia. The authors conclude by pointing to the importance of prevention, treatment, and palliative care for people with schizophrenia as they move through the health care system. This study was supported by funding from the University of Manitoba, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Public Health Agency of Canada, Canadian Institutes of Health Research Applied Public Health Chair, and a Canadian Chair in Palliative Care. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the February Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Child homicide is in general a rare event, even though numbers for this type of death in the United States have increased over the last 50 years. Filicide is the killing of a child by a parent, and when children are murdered in high-income regions, the perpetrator is most likely the parent. 
Previous research has yet to draw a full picture of filicide that can inform preventative efforts, including risk assessment and management. The authors of this article sought to identify risk factors for filicide. More precisely, they wanted to identify risk factors that were different between filicide offenders and other homicide offenders. Their study, set in Sweden and funded by the Swedish Research Council, was a nationwide matched cohort study of filicides, including cases in which the perpetrator committed suicide in direct connection to the offense. They compared filicide offenders and their children to matched general population controls. To compare filicide and other homicide, parallel analyses were made with non-filicide homicide offenders and random controls. The authors found that strong risk factors of filicide were previous psychiatric disorder and previous suicide attempts. However, substance misuse and prior violent crime were less common in filicide than in non-filicide homicide offenders. They also found that twin birth, which possibly adds strain to parenting, was an independent risk factor of filicide. The authors conclude that filicide prevention attempts should focus on psychiatric disorder and suicidal behavior instead of more general risk factors such as substance misuse for interpersonal violence. This study was supported by grants from the Swedish Research Council, Medicine, the National Crime Compensation Authority, the National Prison and Probation Services, and the Karolinska Institute Faculty Funds for Partial Financing of Doctoral Students. In the past two to three decades, use of antidepressants in the United States has increased substantially. A recent analysis examined the trend in long-term use of antidepressants by U.S. adults from 1999 to 2010. The authors used data from over 35,000 participants in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is a representative survey of the general population. The prevalence of antidepressant use increased significantly from 6.5% in 1999 to 2000 to 10.4% in 2009 to 2010. The increase was limited to those who reported using an antidepressant for at least 24 months, and the number of patients with this long-term use more than doubled from 3% in 1999 to 2000 to 6.9% in 2009 to 2010. Medium and short-term use of antidepressants did not change appreciably, nor the number of people who started taking antidepressants each year. The increasing trend in long-term antidepressant use was also limited to adults who received their care from general medical providers. In this month's ASCP Corner, Maurizio Fava, the president of the ASCP, outlines the history of the NCDU meeting, which, as of this year, will be known as the ASCP Annual Meeting. You can also read about upcoming highlights from this year's meeting, which will be held June 16th to 19th in Hollywood, Florida. The full text of this article is freely available online. 
Please visit the February Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.